Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Global Joy for All Ye Lands and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 20th, 2005. I have not cracked the cover of my King James Version of the Bible for ages. But this week I blew the dust off its pages to enjoy the majestic cadences of its sacred poetry. There were translations of the Bible into English long before the KJV, the first of which was by John Wycliffe in 1382, but none have been more influential. Commissioned in 1604 and completed in 1611, the KJV has shaped our entire English-speaking language and culture even down to today. As the Oxford theologian Alistair McGrath puts it, quote, without the King James Bible, there would have been no paradise lost, no pilgrim's progress, no Handel's Messiah, no Negro spirituals, and no Gettysburg address. Even our church jokes witness to its legacy of allegiance. If it was good enough for St. Paul, it's good enough for me. Thus, from the lectionary readings for this week, here is the most familiar and favorite of all psalms and the most influential of all English translations. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he who hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. I suspect that these lines will provoke some residual memory even for people who are unfamiliar with the Bible. But for believers, the Bible is more than an object of literary analysis or historical curiosity, however beautiful. We read the Bible not merely for religious information or even for inspiration, but instead for personal transformation. In other words, we read scripture not as an object over which we stand, but in a manner in which we construe ourselves as objects, and the Bible as the subject of God's address to us. Just what does this classic poem of Hebrew history say to us? In a world riven with wars, starvation, HIV AIDS, inequities of all sorts, and preventable suffering, perhaps nothing is more radical or countercultural than to live with joy, gladness, praise, and gratitude. The psalmist strikes a confident chord for us who live in an age of justifiable fears and apprehensions. His purview is global, too, rather than parochial. Originating from an ancient writer of a geopolitically marginal people, I am always amazed at the cosmic scale of the Hebrew poetry. The psalmist calls every person in every time and place, all ye lands, to offer thanksgiving, singing and grateful devotion to Yahweh. His verse pushes us beyond all ethnocentric boundaries to embrace every other. 
and beyond every egocentric preoccupation to worship God alone. The source of confident joy and joyful confidence originates in the fundamental acknowledgement that, quote, the Lord, he is God. It is he who hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture, end quote. Turning from divine praise to human dignity, the psalmist celebrates the good news that we are neither alone nor autonomous. He confesses that God fashioned every single person and that therefore every human being enjoys an inherent worth that can never be earned nor even lost and that therefore we enjoy God's bountiful care. Many people, of course, do not view the world or people this way. And herein lies a great divide between two very different ways of experiencing life itself. Some prominent voices in our culture, many of which speak in the name of science, object to the so-called speciesism that the psalmist endorses. Consider these three examples. The British mathematician and Nobel laureate Bertrand Russell once wrote, since Copernicus, it has been evident that man has not the cosmic importance which he formerly arrogated to himself. No man who has failed to assimilate this fact has a right to call his philosophy scientific." End quote. More recently, in his book The Selfish Gene, published in 1976, the outspoken atheist and zoologist Richard Dawkins of Oxford objects to the idea that the human species might claim any special moral consideration as compared with other species. Misguided re religious zealots might believe that ancient superstition, says Dawkins, but, quote, it has no proper basis in evolutionary biology, end quote. Then, here in America, the ethicist Peter Singer of Princeton has forcefully argued against what he considers a stubborn, dogmatic religious prejudice the belief that the human species enjoys a special place in the cosmos. To the extent that the conclusions of Russell, Dawkins, and Singer are unremittingly secular and atheistic, and I think they are, I agree with Houston Smith, who in his new book, The Soul of Christianity, objects that their scientistic worldview has been a disaster for the human spirit. For many thoughtful people, Christian and otherwise, the promise of endless progress through the technological application of continuous scientific discovery reads like a cruel joke this century. Furthermore, I suspect that most people find the materialist reduction of human life to empirical science emotionally bleak and unsatisfying. The English poet Christina Rossetti of the 19th century is on to something when she observes that, quote, were there no God we would be in this glorious world with grateful hearts and no one to thank. Gratitude, in other words, requires an object or recipient. Ultimately, Russell, Dawkins, and Singer have no one to thank. Finally, it is true that some people have misappropriated the idea that human beings bear a special divine dignity in ways that have resulted in domination and exploitation of the earth. Singer and others like him rightly warn us of that danger. But the psalmist insists that our posture is one of gratitude and service, not arrogant self-aggrandizement. 
Long ago, Kierkegaard, who died 150 years ago on November 11th, 1855, warned of the encroachment of scientific specialization that failed to limit itself to the world of plants and animals and stars and instead threatened to annex the world of the soul or spirit. In contrast, he advocated a worldview that echoes Psalm 100. Quote, if at every moment, both present and future, it were eternally certain that nothing has happened or ever can happen, not even the most fearful horror invented by the most morbid imagination and translated into fact, which can separate us from God's love, here would be reason for joy." End quote. Jubilate Deo. The first two words of Psalm 100 in Latin make a joyful noise unto the Lord, celebrates a good God whose mercy is everlasting, without conditions or limits. Believing this, we offer to him grateful hearts this Thanksgiving. Now for some questions for further reflection. Is there a difference between joy and happiness? Recall people who have exemplified a spirit of gratitude and joy. When and why have you ever been truly joyful? Is gratitude a lost virtue today? And if so, why? And how do we recover it? And finally, just how influential are the voices of famous atheists like Bertrand Russell, Richard Dawkins, and Peter Singer. My book note for November 20th is a book entitled The Jesus Creed, Loving God, Loving Others by Scott McKnight, Brewster, Massachusetts, Paraclete Press, third printing, 2005, 335 pages. First published in September 2004, The Jesus Creed is already in its third printing and the recipient of Christianity Today's Book Award for 2005 as one of the best books of the year to introduce people to evangelical Christianity. Clearly, McKnight, the Carl Olson Professor in Religious Studies at North Park College in Chicago, has struck a chord with considerable reading audience. The strength of his book is its focus on what is central to the faith rather than peripheral and to present that central affirmation in a simple, which is not to say simplistic, manner. McKnight taught seminary students for 11 years before choosing to teach college-level students for the past 10 years, and about half of his younger students are not even Christian. I admired his ability to move from his capacity as a technical specialist who has written more weighty tomes to connect with people who know nothing at all about the faith. A number of other strengths commend his book. McKnight draws upon a wide fund of ecumenical sources, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, mainline Protestant, Pentecostal, and Evangelical. He uses storytelling to good effect by sharing real-life anecdotes from his personal, family, and professional life. His style is casual throughout, and for that reason, entirely accessible. John the Baptist, for example, was, quote, wired hot and a bit off his rocker, living in the wilderness, eating bugs and calling the nation to repentance, end quote.
Being the scholar that he is, McKnight also roots his discussion in the Jewish context of the life and times of Jesus. Although his presentation is simple, at the same time it is comprehensive, guiding the reader through such issues as community, social justice, the sacraments, and so forth. Finally, I appreciated McKnight's book because he introduces readers to sources from the ancient to the modern and to points in between. In his book, you'll learn about the early fathers, the medieval monastics, the Reformation Protestants, and modern-day writers from Dorothy Sayers to C.S. Lewis and Dallas Willard. In just what is the Jesus Creed? It is Jesus' amended version of the Jewish Shema, of Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 to 9, the heart and soul, the sine qua non or quintessence of Judaism. When asked by an expert in the law about the greatest commandment, Jesus answered with the Shema, but he added to it Leviticus 19 verse 18. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 33. In that short summary, we have what Thomas Akempis once called, quote, a whole dictionary in just one dictum, end quote. In the rest of his book, McKnight parses the grammar of Christian faith so clearly that few readers could ever misunderstand it. My film review this week is of a movie called The Lords of Dogtown, 2005. This retrospective docudrama, which claims to be inspired by a true story, was written by Stacy Peralta, one of the central characters in the film who also wrote the earlier genuine documentary called Dogtown and Z-Boys in 2001. Set in Venice in 1975, it follows the fortunes of three teenage surfers turned skateboarders who discover the magic of attaching polyurethane wheels to the bottoms of mini surfboards. Quote, they come from oil and they grip. You can ride on walls, end quote. The film has very little plot or character development, a lot of drugs and alcohol, and the dialogue seldom moves beyond verbal towel snapping. But there is enjoyable footage of these wood pushers careening on tops of cars, weaving between traffic, carving empty swimming pools, hitching on the rear bumpers of buses, and competing in the first national skateboard competitions. This film hardly rises to the quality of what riding giants did for surfing, but it still provokes some interesting questions about how a small group of stoned beach bums who were greatly disenfranchised from mainstream society jump-started what is now a billion-dollar industry complete with X Games on ESPN. The Lords of Dogtown, 2005. Finally, for poetry this week, we have posted Alexander Pope's poem, Ode on Solitude. How happy he, who free from care, the rage of courts and noise of towns, contented breathes his native air in his own grounds. Whose herds with milk, whose fields with bread, whose flocks supply him with attire, whose trees in summer yield him shade, in winter fire.
Blessed, who can unconcernedly find hours, days, and years slide swift away in health of body, peace of mind, quiet by day? Sound sleep by night, study and ease, together mixed sweet recreation, and innocence which most does please with meditation. Thus let me live unheard, unknown, thus unlamented let me die, steal from the world and not a stone, tell where I lie. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 20th, 2005. And please join us every Monday for a new essay, book note, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.